The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, folks. We'll get started with our, our study of God's words. So grab your Bibles as you find your seats. And uh, please open again to the letter of Galatians. Josh, thank you for sitting in the empty, vacant side. (laughs) Open to Galatians chapter 1. Last week we began our study in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we'll continue through the rest of the year into November. We may take a short break for Advent. We'll resume again and then finish sometime in January, uh, working our way through the entire book. Uh, if you're new with us, one of the things that we do is we, we, we stake out a place in the Bible, usually in a book, and we'll make our, our way through that book, beginning from the beginning, and then chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to the very end, in sequence. And so we don't skip any parts of the book, we don't skip any verses of the book, though at times some of the sermons may expound less than others, we intend to preach the whole counsel of God through his word, and so we skip no portions of the Bible. Uh, when we when we preach it so we're going to stake out in Galatians for the next several months and what that means is there's going to be at times some fiery sermons because Paul tends to go in on the Galatians especially and on some of the opponents of the gospel there at the church of Galatia and uh, this sermon will be one of them so this morning if you feel like I'm preaching a as they call it a fire and brimstone sermon please know that I'm doing my best to honor the teaching and the writing of Paul here Uh, But my prayer is that the Christians among us this morning would be comforted by the reminder of the gospel and that those who are not Christians would be sufficiently warned of the peril of not heeding the gospel. And those who would oppose it would be uh, severely chastised by his word. Let's begin with a prayer and then we'll read. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, God, this morning as we study it that our hearts would be attuned to receive it and to understand it well. We pray that your spirit would help our minds grasp the the importance of what it is that you would have us know and understand so that we could more faithfully and fervently believe and walk in the truth of the gospel, to honor and glorify you and Christ, your son, that we would walk diligently in faithfulness and obedience to the gospel and that as we are both encouraged and exhorted as well as corrected and chastised by his word we would lean not on our own strength but upon your mercy and depend upon your grace for what is needed the next steps that we take we pray for those who are not here because they're sick or their work has taken them away would you encourage them and remind them of your Your care for them, even now, and though absent with us in body, would be present with us in spirit. May they find time to pray and read and study, perhaps even to tune in and listen along with us. But for those who are not here because of sin, neglect, failing to prioritize or to heed the commands of Scripture, God, we would ask that you confront and rebuke gently in grace and draw them to yourself. We pray that our witness of the gospel this morning would be felt and known in our community and in our neighborhoods and 
in our families. For your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Let's read together Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. This is Paul writing to the Christians, the church of Galatia. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? For if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For a moment, imagine that you are on the high cliffs of some mountain. There's a clearly demarked path that is safe for you to travel, but there are no guardrails along either side. One slip off the path, and you find yourself in a very treacherous position. Maybe the slope begins rather gently, but very quickly it becomes at a very steep grade, and all hope of catching your balance or stopping yourself from falling goes quickly out the window after just a few seconds. There are many such paths and places, even in Virginia like this, Indeed, all over the world, there are dangerous places to walk and to traverse, that it takes diligence and faithfulness, staying to the clearly marked trail, lest you step off, stumble, and fall. Even wrong turns can lead you into very dangerous places, driving through a city that you may not know, or walking through a shortcut that is rife with dangers from every side. Even driving can lead you into scary encounters. Just this past summer, Brittany and I went to my sister's cabin in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And if you've ever been to the mountains out there, near the Smoky Mountains, they have some very steep hills. And we're driving in our 2013 Grand Caravan, which, though it has a V6 engine, Kendrick, is only two-wheel drive and has not been taken care of very well. <laughs> and it's raining, and we turn a corner, so far, I've successfully managed to navigate all the turns and twists leading into Tennessee. But there's one particular hill that as I turned, a car was coming down. Now, the, the roads in Tennessee on the mountains are very narrow, and there's not much room to pass. You kind of have to either try, but in two vans or a big truck, you're not making much room for one another, or you have to wait. And so I turn a corner, kind of wait for a few seconds so that I can si find some room, and then try to gun it up this hill that is fairly steep. And because it's raining, my tires start to spin. And for about a split second, I think this is it. This is the explosion in the movie where <laughs> the van rolls down the window and everything explodes. And that's it. The Oliveri family all together just at one time. Luckily, by God's grace, the wheels catch. And with much screaming from my wife and some of my kids not paying fully attention, 
we make it to the top of the hill, and, uh, and then we have to face the driveway, which is itself another steep hill. All that to say, one small slip, one turn, one faulty move on my part, and we're down a cliff. We're landing in the bottom of a ravine, in a valley, in the mountains. Who would have seen us? Maybe the smoke from our car would have flagged somebody down. A perilous journey is just that. You have to be diligent. You have to pay attention. You can't fall off the path. And if you inadvertently take steps off the path, you may find yourself in a place that you don't want to be, in a very dangerous position, even a deadly one. I think here in our text, Paul outlines exactly what is happening in the church of Galatia. There are are those who have come off of the path of obedience to to the gospel, who have strayed from what Paul has taught and is now finding themselves increasingly in dangerous territory. They're finding themselves in in river-washed valleys where they have no grip to get themselves out from where they've placed themselves. And so it is, Paul gives them the means, warns them, that if they continue down this path, they will find themselves in a dangerous place. And so there's two things we'll pay attention to in our text. The first is that we'll see the perilous path of false preachers. That's verses 6 through 9. The perilous path of false preachers. That is, the path that those who come against the scriptures, against the gospel, and begin to teach a false message, will find themselves in a very dangerous and perilous place. So the dangerous path of false preachers. And then in verse 10... The powerful, the powerful prescription against false teachers. So the perilous path of false preachers and the powerful prescription against false preachers. Consider, firstly, then, the perilous path of false preachers. This, friends, of course, is a warning to our own church today to be on guard and cognizant that our church is not much different from the churches in Galatia that we too may be very well swept up in the same controversy, in the same degree of separation from the gospel if we are not careful. So God has preserved this letter for us so that we may heed rightly the warning here. The first step along the perilous path of false preachers, we see in verse 7, the church disturbed. Notice what he says. He says that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. There are some who trouble you or vex you, or in the New American Standard translation, there are some who disturb you and distort the gospel of Christ. So the first step within the churches of Galatia is that the church is disturbed. That is, there's an infiltration of those who would stir up strife, and would agitate the the balance within the church, the doctrinal balance, the theological and social balance of the church by introducing a message in teaching which runs contrary to what they've been established on. There are fringe views that have infiltrated the church and they haven't been put on check. People with, with crazy thoughts about the gospel, with enough true things 
to kind of cover and mask the untrue things that come in like a Trojan horse to disrupt and agitate the church. This word here, disturbed or trouble, is the word terasso. It means literally to shake or to excite, to agitate, to throw into a state of confusion. And so there's disturbers who have come into the church teaching a false message, and their teaching is actually shaking the church up. It's causing the doctrinal unity in the foundation which Paul had laid, the gospel of Christ, to begin to crack in their minds. There are several disturbers which can come into the church. I want to give you a list of four that the church here in Galatia and our own church today should be mindful of. Common disturbers of the church sometimes are the contrarian. The contrarian is constantly pushing and prodding and poking at all the established norms in the church. Now, I, I, I love a good contrarian argument. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes it's important to question why we do things. Traditions sometimes are just that. But you can see when doctrinal balance, where doctrinal unity hangs in the balance, a contrarian could do much more than simply push the envelope and question norms, but rather begin to defy them and even undermine them. Norms that, though maybe not required in Scripture, help promote the unity of the church. Even norms that are grounded in Scripture, commands of Christ or principles from his word that we seek to obey and contextualize into our own situation, that because it doesn't sit right or work well with their own framework of theology or their own worldview, seems less important. And so the contrarian comes in and decides to take an opposite position to every position you hold or espouse even one that you just have long believed to be true, ones you were taught as children, ones that you've been taught here, all of a sudden you hear the uh, infamous, well, actually. Now, the contrarian here usually engages in fruitless debates within the church. And there's no real design for building up the body in unity and in doctrinal knowledge and truth. It's simply to argue for argument's sake. It's simply to showcase their knowledge or to agitate because they like the drama. The contrarian puffs himself up because he wants to be able to seem different, and by different, better. You can see how this would disturb the church. The second common disturber of the church would be the lecturer. The lecturer comes in, and he prides himself on his historical and his theological and his philosophical knowledge. He's He's a data bank of information about all things church and theology. He's a walking encyclopedia for every his, history uh, buff. He's, he, he knows what he's talking about often. He's deeply, widely read. And so, he's puffed up with knowledge. He knows church history. He knows the obscure theologians. He's read the even more obscure philosophers. But instead of building up the body, he lectures the body about what they should know but don't, about the small little truths that they should have uncovered 
in the deep pockets of some philosophical meandering of some obscure philosopher or theologer, and here they just end up being discouraged by these lectures, not out of fault. In fact, he makes them feel stupid. The contrarian and the lecturer are close friends, but are very different disturbers of the church. But the, con the contrarian likes to push the envelope in an unhelpful way. The lecturer will pride himself on rising above the envelope and leading others to feel a sense of inferiority. You can see how this disrupts the balance and the unity of the church. Another common disturber of the church is the biblicist. The biblicist comes in and he rejects, and by the way, I'm using the masculine he, but this could be a man or a woman, just so you know. Comes in and rejects the healthy theological principalizing and the theological synthesis that's gone on in the church. That is the working out of what the Bible teaches about theology and the principles gained from doctrinal study, uh, how we understand what we should do, why we should do it. And he rejects those kind of principles. He rejects the, the argumentation from Scripture where it isn't explicit on the basis of what we would understand to be an overly rigid interpretation of the Scripture. That is, he often will come in to lack nuance and gentleness in his approach. The biblicist is usually blunt in his argument. Well, the Bible doesn't say it, and so your argument is invalid. Have you heard this one before? Well, if you can't give me a proof text, chapter and verse, please, you have no ground to stand on. Well, the motivation, of course, is right. We want to back everything we do by Scripture. This is what we aim for at foundation. But you can understand, if you cut off the nuance of biblical interpretation, if you leave no room for grace and working out the, the less explicit passages of Scripture, then the biblicist will just simply come in and be blunt rather than careful. Again, the doctrinal unity of the church is disturbed and set off, off tilt. The next common disturber of the church is what I would call the lawyer. Now, there's two kinds of lawyers, as you may know, one for the prosecution and one for the defense. The one for the prosecution here wants to restrict the law as tightly as possible around the defendant so that there's no possible way that the defendant couldn't have broken the law. In biblical terms, we would call this the legalist. He's the one who takes the law and defines it in such a narrow sense that it's so easy to break. And it guards you in, and there's no room to move without breaking God's law. A good prosecuting lawyer will do just that. Argue his position by the narrowest definition of the law so that the defendant is found guilty. And so he argues his case in the church that those who step over or violate his narrow and strict interpretation of the scripture is now in sin. But there's also the other side, the defense attorney, the one who advocates for the defendant. This is the opposite of the prosecuting attorney. He's the one who, who argues for a looser interpretation of the law. One that wants to draw the widest circle around the defendant so that it can't be said that he's ever overstepped the law. In this case, you have not the legalist, but the libertine. So that nothing is really out of bounds. The line is drawn so far away that really sin is just theoretical and not practical. 
Well, both of these kinds of lawyers, both of these disturbers, you can see, can wreak real damage within the church. Both those who restrict the application of God's truth and his word and calls everything that violates the strict interpretation of it as sin. And those whose definition of sin is so far away from God's word that there seems to be no sin for which Jesus has really died. Well, you come in and the contrarian or the lecturer or the biblicist or the legalist or the libertine starts teaching and is leading others astray, very quickly there's decisions you have to make about the gospel. Did Jesus really die for sins that I don't really commit? Or did Jesus really die for sins that I just continue unavoidably to commit? The biblicist will come in and demand that everything is done with a proof text. The lecturer will proudly display his knowledge and disparage others and the contrarians will constantly frustrate his leaders in the church by never settling or listening. The church disturbed is the first step on the perilous path for any false teacher. And in the church of Galatians, this is what has happened. There are some who have come in since Paul has established it, who have troubled, vexed, and shaken the church. But this is often never one step. It always continues on. If left unchecked, the gospel becomes distorted. That's the second step on the perilous path of false preachers. First, the church is disturbed. Then the gospel is distorted. Again, look in verse 7. Paul links these two together. There are those among you, some who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel. The disruption within the church goes hand in hand with the distortion of the gospel. Not on the first day they arrive. They have to pass some sort of unspoken test. They have to speak the right sibyleth. They have to get in the door. But eventually, they gain enough influence and they begin to subtly distort the gospel. There's enough that's true. There's enough that's valid. There's enough with which there's commonality and agreement on. But the major differences with the contrarian or the lecturer or the legalist will come in and begin to subtly distort the gospel through their influence and their teaching. And this true gospel over time is made false by running contrary to it. And because it was subtle, and because they were allowed in, it becomes accepted among the flock. Certain concessions get made, or the faithful decide to leave. And the inexperienced, maybe newer Christians, with little foundation to stand on, with little scriptural knowledge to base their, their understanding upon, accepts what these false teachers promote. And the true gospel which they once believed is riddled with holes and a disease. It becomes distorted, perverted even, by these false teachers. The word here for distort is the word metastrepho, which literally means to reverse, to, to change the opposite direction, or to twist into something different. Think of a clown manipulating a balloon animal. It starts out as a normal balloon, 
and with a series of twists, ends up something completely different. These distorters will take the gospel in its pure form, in its true form and expression, and twist it and distort it to resemble something that they prefer. What is this distortion? What's the nature of the change that they seek to make subtly within the church? In Galatians, it was, it was an addition to the gospel. They are adding to God's word. In fact, they take the gospel, which is the offer of free grace in Christ, and they say, it's not really free. You actually have to obey the law to earn salvation. The gospel is the beginning, but the law is really the substance. And so this addition to the gospel does more than simply alter the message. We're not simply talking about changing the form, but completely reversing it, undoing it. Reversing all that the gospel has accomplished and what it stands for. What the distortion does is places the law, the scripture in the Old Testament, above at the head of the entire Christian enterprise. And grace, what we would understand as unmerited and undeserved favor, now simply becomes one's natural ability to obey the law in response to the gospel. On top of this, they come in with an attitude of higher spirituality. Those who are truly Christian will become circumcised. Those who are truly Christian will restrict themselves to this dietary work. Those who are truly Christians will still observe this Sabbath and these festivals. Those who are truly Christian will give themselves to the obedience of the law just like the Israelites did. That is what it means to be truly Christian. But this is a distortion of the gospel. That those Christians who are hungry for knowledge or curious about how they might go deeper in understanding of God's word were led astray by wolves who would come in to destroy and to distort the gospel. Friends, may this be a warning to us that we must be careful not to allow your hunger for truth, your hunger for the gospel, or your curious fascination about the truths of Scripture to lead you into an undiscerningly dangerous place, to lead you into untrue territory. You cannot improve on the gospel, and you cannot improve yourself any more than the gospel alone has already done. The allure of a false gospel is that you can add and you can improve. But this is based in a falsehood that the gospel itself is founded upon, that you and I can do nothing, that the gospel is a gift of God's free grace, and that Jesus' death is the only means by which our sins will be atoned, and our faith in Christ is the only means by which we receive the benefits of that atonement, and our repentance from sin and our obedience to, to God's word and Christ's commandments are the only means by which we can obey and please God in faith. And anything added to that is not simply in an altering of the gospel, but an undoing of it, a distortion and a perversion of it. And it's all too common for those who have a hunger for the deeper things of the Lord without discernment to find themselves off the path, slipping into the ravine towards their destruction. I think Luther 
captures the appeal and the strategy here of these opponents, these false teachers. In a summary of their message, he writes that they say something like this. Well, Christ's a fine master. He makes the beginning, but Moses must complete the structure. That's their message. They want the church to return to the law. What Christ has done is all well and good, but the law is where the, where the real money's at. He goes on, he says, the devil's nature shows itself therein, that is in this message. If he cannot ruin people by wrong, by wronging and persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. If he cannot ruin people by wronging and persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. How many self-improvement books have you read this year that have subtly drawn you in to a falsehood that you can improve yourself better than the gospel can? How many Christian teaching have you heard on the internet, from your friends, from other Christians who have said the gospel is good and precious, but it's not enough. You've got to do these things. You've got to dress this way. Listen to this music. You've got to speak this way. You've got to act like this. All of these are just modern versions of what the law would command. So when the church is first disturbed by these agitators and shaken and confused by those who would come in, the gospel is distorted. And then what happens? The church is disturbed. The gospel is distorted. The third step on the path of the false preacher is that the Lord is deserted. Look in verse 6. Paul says that he's astonished, bewildered, that you have so quickly or are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This desertion of the Lord is an inevitable trajectory of the first two steps. It is a very literal, slippery slope. Once the church allows the agitators to come in, to gain influence, and to teach, the gospel becomes distorted and accepted among the flock, and ultimately the Lord is deserted. Notice that it is the Lord who is abandoned. That at the end of the day, abandoning the truth of the gospel is tantamount to abandoning the Lord himself. It is his gospel. The word here for deserting means to bring to another place. It's used in another place in the Bible, Hebrews 11.5, when there the author is speaking of the faith of Enoch, that God has translated him from earth to heaven. Enoch's being taken up into heaven is the same word for deserting here, which really means being taken from one place and put in another and in this context, Paul uses it in a military sense. For those who have defected or whose allegiance have shifted from one place to the other. In other words, like a soldier who has deserted his post in command and gone and fought for the enemy. This is strong language. It is God himself who is deserted as soon as the gospel becomes distorted. And it is God, him, who has, he says, called you by grace. Now, why has he brought that out? He who called you in the grace of Christ. Remember, grace 
is the core of the gospel. It's the scarlet thread woven throughout all of this letter. And because it's the core of the gospel, he seeks to remind them that their straying and deserting of God is the same one who has given you grace in Christ. And he's abandoned and ignored for another gospel. Another here using the word heteros, where we get heterodox as opposed to orthodox. That is of a different kind of gospel. Not a difference of degree, but a difference of kind. He is an altogether different gospel that is preached here by these false preachers. What kind of gospel? A gospel of works righteousness. A gospel of Christ and the law. And the law has its place. And Galatians will devote a significant chapter to help us understand the place of the law in the Christian life. But the gospel, at the end of the day, does something different with the law that the Old Testament does not. It completely removes the law's ability to save and only affirms its ability to lead us to Christ. Obedience to the law will not give us righteousness. Indeed, it cannot. For many would have been saved through obedience to the law. No, it is Christ and his righteousness alone by which anyone can be saved. There is only one gospel, he says in verse 7. You've abandoned and turned to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Notice the two words there. A different gospel, heteros, of a different kind. Because, verse 7, there is not another one. There is no other gospel like it. There is no gospel that shares the same essence and truth as the one that Paul has preached. Everything else is of an altogether different kind. There is only one gospel. And Josh read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. I think you would do well to memorize Paul's summary of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That, in essence, is the gospel. Notice the gospel is not a set of principles. It is not a set of duties. It is not a bunch of good sayings or wise proverbs. The gospel is good news about what Christ has done. And it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The truth of Christ's death, his atoning work on the cross, the truth of his resurrection and victory over the grave is the truth of the gospel. And so what does Paul warn us of here? That a gospel without grace but law will not lead us to the God of grace. If we seek the Lord, we will not find him by believing a gospel of works righteousness. A gospel without grace will not lead us to the God of grace. Indeed, we like Christian and John Bunyan, Pilgrim Progress, keep the burden on our back and find no place to relieve ourselves of its weight. At the cross and the cross alone, we see God's grace freely given unmerited and undeserved by all who would come to receive it. Not by their works, but by faith are they saved. 
This is where you find God, at the cross of Christ. And so the steps of the perilous path of the false preacher begins with the church disturbed. The next step of the gospel distorted leads to the Lord deserted. And the last step, the ultimate destination. In verses 8 through 9, the heretics damned. He says that if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. If we, that is Paul and his other apostles, or even an angel from heaven, should preach to you a different gospel than the one that we preach, let him be accursed. That is, preaching a gospel contrary to the truth is to preach directly against God himself and to bring down God's wrath against him. The word, you may know, is anathema which has come to, to signal God's condemnation against sinners. It is the highest condemnation one can face. He says, in, a, in, in essence, when he pronounces an anathema against those who preach a false gospel, let those who come to preach to you what we have preached, contrary to what we have preached, he says, in essence, may they face the wrath of God. May they fall under God's condemnation. May God vindicate himself by pouring out his wrath and judgment upon them. From which there is no escape. Beyond which there is no repentance. Since it is God's gospel they distort. And it is God himself that they desert. It will be God himself that renders judgment upon them. This isn't simply a way to win points by cursing his enemies. This isn't the vitriolic smearing of his opponents or the all too common in our society quick to throw out the label of heretics to the people you disagree with simply to win style points or to create straw men. For Paul, this is a sober warning of what awaits those who in their stubborn rebellion insist upon the addition of law and works to the gospel of Christ. It is God's judgment, the judgment of hell. He says it for two reasons. One, there will be a stricter judgment for teachers. The Apostle James tells us this, that not many of you should become teachers, brothers, for you will be held to a stricter judgment. Those who preach a false message are lightly, rightly labeled heretics for their leading others to believe a false gospel. But friends, the destination is the same for the deserters of the true gospel, even if they're led astray by a heretic. If you believe heresy, you are still led in the same direction. Judgment, wrath, damnation, eternal and everlasting torment in hell. For all those who desert the true God and deny the true gospel and accept a false one, find themselves under God's wrath. So the perilous path of false preachers begins simply by infiltrating a church, taking advantage of those who may not have the foundation of knowledge or discernment. They distort the gospel and then lead others to desert the Lord. But ultimately, God's vengeance and justice play out, and they find themselves damned. 
under God's curse. Well, that was the first and bulk, first and main bulk of the passage here of the perilous path of false preachers. But verse 10 is sort of a transitionary verse into the, the meat of the letter as it begins more formally. And this is the powerful prescription against false teachers. This is the ministry defended. He says, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? For if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What Paul means to say here is that the true preaching and the true belief of the true gospel honors the true God. That he is intent on obeying God no matter what it costs. He's not here to please man or to tickle fancies. He's here to please and serve God. He is, as he says, a servant of Christ. Pragmatically, of course, there's nothing gained by lying to people to get them to like you if in the process you seal their fate in damnation. You gain nothing. Perhaps in the short term you may have their high praise and opinion, but you have sealed their soul to hell. Their ultimate pleasure is not in what they can boast of in this world, namely their obedience to the law. Their ultimate pleasure is, as it is for all of us, what they can and may gain by God's free and special grace in the next. And the gospel is alone the means by which you can secure that for yourself, or rather the means by which Christ has secured it for you and you may obtain it. It's not about what you can boast of in this world but what you have gained by God's free and special grace in the next. It is not about obedience to the law. And so by helping people feel better about themselves for what they've done, you've sealed their fate. You've led them in the opposite direction from what would ultimately give them pleasure. And so Paul here draws a line of opposition. He says you cannot seek to please man and be a servant of Christ. You see what he says? If I were still trying to please man, that is, if I, if I were still like a Pharisee, still a proponent of the law over gospel, I would not be a servant of Christ. You cannot seek to please man and be a servant of Christ. And here, Paul means to please man means to gain his approval by appealing to his sinful nature or by refusing to offend him in any way particularly with the gospel. Or in other words, listen, to place man over the gospel, to place man over the gospel as able to contribute to his salvation by works of the law, by his own righteousness, is to gratify the sinful fleshly desire of self-autonomy and prideful self-glory. That's what we do when we preach a gospel contrary to what Paul and the scriptures teach. We place man over the gospel, and we tell him, you are able to secure your own salvation with faith and works. We give in to the fleshly desire to have glory and power and autonomy for ourselves and take what is rightfully God and claim for ourselves. But Paul says you can't do both. You can't preach a false gospel and be a servant of Christ. The two are diametrically opposed. So a commitment to Christ and his gospel, rather than pleasing men, leads you to serve men. And you serve men often in the preaching of the gospel by offending them. 
not by being a jerk or being rude, not by failing to be nuanced and careful, not by shepherding and loving, but by, when when time comes, bringing the manifold wisdom of their sin to their mind and the manifold wisdom of God's glory in the gospel to the front. The gospel will do the offending if you do the preaching. And that's the prescription against false preachers, to defend what God has given us in Christ. And so two exhortations that follow, really nearly the same exhortations from last week. The exhortation is to know the gospel. Know the gospel. We cannot stress enough that a knowledge of the gospel is necessary for salvation and necessary for your growth in Christ. So two exhortations under that heading. First, know the gospel so that you may detect disturbers and distortions. Know the gospel, the true gospel, that Christ came as a man, though he was in the form of God, that he may suffer for your sin, bearing the wrath of God across on the cross, that in his death your sins are atoned, and that by faith you may receive the full measure of assurance. Know the gospel so you may detect disturbers and distortions. You may detect it from without. False religions teach a false gospel. All roads, as Jake said two weeks ago, do not lead to Rome. No, you must be willing and able to defend the gospel by recognizing the distortions of the gospel. From without, from the secular ideologies and worldviews to false religions, know the gospel, know the weaknesses and the shortcomings of the promises of the world and other religions. But know the gospel so that you can detect disruptions and distortions from within, from within the church. Be on guard against those who would come in subtly to, to gain influence, the contrarians, the legalists, the libertines, the lecturers, the lawyers, the biblicists. Be careful. Wolves normally destroy the church from within. This happens in Galatians. It happens in Ephesians. It happens in almost every church where its members are not on guard. If you know the gospel, you can detect the wolves and the false teachers as they come into the church. We must be willing to throw them out. We must be willing to let them know that their message is not welcome. We must plead with them to believe the gospel Paul preaches. We must call them to repentance or else we must cast them out. Know the gospel so that you may detect disturbers and distorters, not simply from without and within the church, but even from within your own heart. The truth is that list of disturbers of the church, you probably tend one way or another to one of them. I certainly do. The truth is that you tend to lean more libertine or legalist. The truth is you tend to back your favorite theological positions sometimes when you don't really have the theological ground to stand on. Sometimes you don't want to address the nuances of a certain position because you'd rather have it your way. This is true for many people. This doesn't automatically make you a wolf, 
But if you are able to recognize the tendencies of your own heart to distort the gospel, then you will certainly be able to extricate those tendencies so that you may be faithful to the gospel. All of this begins with a knowledge of it. So get clear on it. Be clear on who the gospel is about and what the gospel is. The good news of Jesus Christ, whose death atones for the sin of all those who place their faith in him. Secondly, know the gospel so that you can defend it against its opponents. Not only so that you may detect disturbers and distortions, so that you can actually defend it against opponents. It is not simply my job as your pastor to defend the gospel, but our job as Christians and as a church to defend the gospel together. Now, there is a special responsibility on elders to guard the flock against wolves, and that is our primary work here as elders. But each one of us, in knowing the gospel and detecting the distortions of it, must be able and willing to give a defense for it and to defend it against its opponents. Three reasons why we should do this. If you know the gospel and you can defend it against its opponents and its distortions, is because the gospel is a warning of anathema, of cursing of God's judgment to those who persist in falsehoods. For those who stubbornly persist in their falsehoods and preaching a wrong-headed, wrong-direction gospel, the gospel stands as a warning to them that they will fall under God's judgment. In our defense of the gospel, we must not be negligent to this truth, that failure to believe and failure to submit is ultimately their own destruction. Secondly, the gospel is a merciful reminder for those who are deceived by false preachers. The reality is wolves often will get their fangs in the sheep. And it is our job, particularly as elders, but together as a flock, as a church, to help deliver that sheep from the jaws of its enemy. And so we do that by defending and preaching the true gospel. Those who have been deceived and led astray, we gently, mercifully remind them that that is not what the gospel is. That it is not about their works or their righteousness. It is not about their legalists. It is not about proof texting everything we do. Rather, it is about the work, the merciful work of Jesus on the cross for sin, not by our own work, but by faith alone, which we receive. May we preach and defend the gospel to remind those and to call those back who are deceived by false preachers, who are led astray by the YouTube preachers and the Facebook posts that would teach them to do otherwise. And you should know the gospel so that you may defend it because it is a tender rebuke of our own distortions. And it's the means by which we return to the true path. Mothers tend to distort the gospel because they think that it is their parenthood, it is their having it all together, it is their perfect homeschooling routine, it is their cleanliness of their house that grants them pleasure in God. Fathers tend to distort the gospel because they think that it is the obedience of their children at a command of their tone of voice that makes them worthy of the gospel and God's good pleasure. Bosses tend to distort the gospel by thinking if they have an obedient workforce, or they have ones that are immediately submissive to all things, or that they have a rich and powerful business 
that this is what will gain favor with them before the Lord. Children can even distort the gospel because they think they've adequately obeyed their parents or they have good grades at school or they're not in trouble like their friends are. You see that none of this has anything to do with the gospel? It has everything to do with your own works righteousness which will not grant you favor before the Lord? And when you know the gospel well and you preach it and defend it even to yourself, you get to see just how wrong-headed you are and how dangerous the distortions of your own gospel has led you to believe something untrue so that you can return to what God has given you in grace. We have to be careful against the falsers. It comes from without, but more often from within, and day by day from our own hearts. So friends, know the gospel. Believe it. Practice it, memorize it, declare it, and pray it for yourself so that the distortions, the subtle and the obvious, will be exposed and corrected. We will not be perfect in this life, but the God who is perfect and the gospel which is pure will lead us one day to perfection and not as a perdition. That's the promise of the gospel. So if you find yourself today acknowledging perhaps that you've distorted the gospel in some way, that you've fallen along the legalist or the libertine, you've fallen along the biblicist or the lawyer, or you are a, a contrarian or a debater. Dive deeper into your knowledge of the gospel and see how it might straighten you out so that you can believe not in your own work and strength, but in the promised and finished work of Christ on the cross and all that it then delivers for us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us to see those areas in our heart and in our church. May we be continually more equipped in the knowledge of your word and of the truth of the gospel so that we can detect those who would seek to disturb us in our faith and to distort the gospel upon which our faith is founded. We ask, God, that we would not be blind to our own sin or to our own contribution to the distortion or the disruption of the church, but in humility seek repentance. But I pray, God, for those who have not fully grasped the gospel in its entirety, that is, those who are unclear or have been unclear about what the gospel is in its essence, your grace, unmerited and undeserved, freely offered in the person and the work of your son Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. And becoming a servant, suffered death, even death on a cross, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that death which provides atonement for sin, for all the wrath against sin, all of the curse of anathema that rightly is on our heads as sinners, diverted to Christ. That they would believe that word. And they would believe it by faith. And that we as a church would not add to that work. That we would not boast in our own work, our own morals, our own righteousness, what we can do 
how we have saved ourselves, how we can keep ourselves, about our jobs or our homes or our families or our grades or our obedience or anything else that we can boast in. Let us instead boast only in the Lord. May those who do not know that gospel be quickened to heart. And would the, the tug and the, the conviction that they feel now lead them to simply cry out to you. O oh Lord, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. In the full assurance that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not on account of their own works, not by any merit they have earned, but on Christ, his death, and the power of his resurrection. May the gospel be the theme of our song as we continue to sing in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Great.